I don't know what it seems like to you out there, but the worship, team's, the worship team knows when I'm off. And it didn't rattle them at all. They are a very talented bunch. <laughs> and very patient. And they let the Lord lead them in worship, which is really cool. So, and We are also praying before the service. Our worship team gets together and we pray. And we probably should have spent a few more <laughs> minutes. But, um, and we also prayed for those that you don't see that... Uh, help enhance our worship so much, the ones that are behind the board back there. So I want to also just recognize them as well. And it only takes a couple of folks, just a few folks, to put communion together for hundreds of people every month. And so uh, it's really cool that uh, just a, a couple of ladies will uh, get together and they'll do all this stuff behind the scenes. They'll come in like the little Keebler elves that nobody sees and they'll put everything in place and then they're out of the way and then our ushers just take care of it from there. I'm in a clapping mood. I want to give them a hand too. <laughs> all right, who else wants to be recognized? Let's keep it going. <laughs> it's just mornings like this when my brain is scrambled for, I have no idea why. It's just you appreciate all the other places, all the other pieces that are in place in order for things to happen. And so uh, the Lord needs to remind me and others of that sometimes, that uh, this is not on one person's shoulders. Thank the Lord. It's kind of funny. I had no idea of talking about all those things going into my intro here. But my opening question is, does God really need our help? After I just admitted to you how messed up and confused I was through most of that music set, I would have to say the answer is no. He doesn't need much of my help at all. But does he need to have, does he need Christians to have their act together in order for his mission, all that he wants to accomplish on this earth, does he need Christians to really get it all together, to be fine-tuned individuals, to be just, you know, sharp and perfect and ready to go? Does Jesus need our help that badly because he can't do it on his own? I'm leading you somewhere. Good answer. Because we continue to hear that stupid, sloppy Christians or followers of Jesus are what hinder the growth of God's kingdom. That if we don't get on top of our game, we're defeating the efforts of God in the world around us. So going back to my question, isn't God strong enough and capable enough of fighting his own battles, spreading his own fame and promoting his own glory? Well, if we believe Psalm 111... I think the answer is yes. And that simply says everything he does reveals his glory and majesty. His righteousness never fails. He causes us to remember his wonderful works. How gracious and merciful is our Lord. So if we can prove by just this portion of Scripture and so many other passages that God doesn't really need our assistance, he's capable of doing his own work, he's capable of spreading his own glory, why would he continue to give us a list of things to do like the one we've been reviewing in 1 Timothy 3 for the last several months? Why would he give us a list that makes it seem as though we have to up our game, we have to get sharper, we have to get better at this thing called walking with Jesus? Why would he give us a list if he can do it all himself? Now, personally, I love lists in the scriptures. 
Part of the difference between Pastor Bill and I is he's really, really good with narrative. He takes, he takes stories and, and things from the Old Testament. I'm like, wow, you can get a sermon out of that? And he does it so well. I need kind of that, that linear thinking, that sequential thing that happens. Like, if you do this, this comes out. If you do this, this, this. So the narrative stuff is cool, and I always admire his ability to be able to do that. So when I see a list, I think, okay, Lord, what do you need me to do? Just break it down for me, spell it out. I just want simple, right off the shelf, I can grab it and go with it. If God doesn't need our help, then why the list? I hope to answer that today and then possibly next week as well as sort of the bigger picture of where we're going with this entire list. We are going to get very specific and talk about one particular word, but as we build up to that word in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, let's just do a quick review of some of the things that we've talked about over the last several months. You remember that as Paul is laying out for Timothy the qualifications of leading his congregation, of leading his assembly, of leading the local group of believers. He says, Timothy, make sure you find men that have certain qualifications before just plugging them in and then just saying, well, I hope for the best. Now, again, if God can build his own church on his own, why does he say we need to find certain people with certain qualifications? You might remember that we, one of our first stops in the list was that the, uh, the leader of God needs to be above accusations that can stick. We're all going to receive arrows. We're all going to have people comment or, or throw uh, accusations our way. But the ones that stick should be few and far between for the leader of God, for the leader of God's people. We also talked about that he should be a one-woman man, that he should practice marital fidelity. And in the culture, that was not having more than one wife at a time. But we talked about how the heart of that, the principle of Paul's warning, is that this man would be zero, uh, single-minded on this one woman. God, you gave me her as a gift. I need nothing else. And then also we discovered that the man of God should be one who is balanced. I don't know if you remember that image of the guy walking on the tightrope with the, with the bar there to keep his balance and things, that, that the, leader of God, the leader of God's people should have a balance about his life. He doesn't falter from one extreme to the next. He's not drawn off by a temptation that's going to get him off the, the rope too far over this way. He knows he's got to stay in the center in order to maintain his balance. And in doing so, and in doing all of these things, we also discover that he'd be one that exercises biblical wisdom, not just worldly smart thinking, not just, just, just an efficient thinking of, well, the shortest uh, uh, distance from, from one place to the next is a straight line, and I can operate by that, and I can get things done because I'm smart and I'm sharp. No, but biblical wisdom sometimes looks like and oftentimes looks like foolishness to the world around us. It doesn't look like the best way from, to get from point A to point B sometimes, does it? And so this was a steep list, and we're only a few words in. And so we come to this word respectable, that Paul is saying, Timothy, you should find men that are respectable. And we say, well, what is that supposed to mean? Are we supposed to look up and wish we could be them just because they're good at something, or they look a certain way, and we've got to define what it means to be respectable? Because it starts to make us think that God needs his leaders to conduct themselves a certain way in order to ensure the success of his church. And I'm, I plan to walk a fine line that's going to be a little bit confusing, perhaps, this morning to make the point that we are not always going to know exactly what it takes to walk down the middle and stay perfectly balanced. And that's where wisdom comes in. 
We could have asked this question, does God need our help at any stop along the way so far? The last several months we could have said, so does God really need us to be, you know, uh, faithful to our marriage? Does he really need us to be all these kinds of things? I mean, can't he just build his church without us being good at stuff? We could have asked that question at any point along the way. But the reason I think it's important to stop and ask it now is because of the leap that we're going to naturally make when we look at a word like respectable. I, I don't know about you, but I have an image in my mind when I think of respectable and I think, well, if you're depending on that God for us all to fit that mold and that image, then your, your church is sunk because we're not going to be able to hold up to that. So I'm hoping to make the argument that the better someone conducts themselves in certain areas, and we're just going to pick on a few, there's a lot more we could get to, but in those certain areas that the greater their influence as a leader in God's kingdom will become. What I'm not going to argue is that somehow God's kingdom won't grow if we're total mess-ups. Remember what we said like in week one or two of 1 Timothy 3, that this is God's baby. This church belongs to him, that all churches that, that live under the banner of the name of Jesus Christ and live by his word, it's his baby. He will do with it what he wants. He's just allowing you and I to participate. So I'm not going to argue that, uh, that somehow God's kingdom won't grow if we're total mess-ups. In other words, we're going to focus on the fact that God is God and we are not. So at no point in this lesson should you come to the conclusion that having a better appearance or a better car or a better salary or a better marriage is what will prove to people around you that God is real and he cares about his children. That would be more focused on us than on him. So a closer look at the word respectable, and we'll just spend a couple minutes here, would, would start to uh, discover whether or not the image we have in our heads is, is the right one. Because the original word for respectable has been translated not only as respectable, but also of good behavior or well-behaved. And we would apply it in our modern terms as a well-ordered life. And just think about that image for a second, a well-ordered life. We use the, the big P word in our, in our culture today. We talk about priorities. And it's, it's the thing that we all struggle to maintain. What are my priorities at the moment? What are my priorities going to be for this week or for this life? And Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to find leaders that have a well-ordered life. Chances are the first thought you have when you think about well-ordered might be the right one. Because we recognize well-ordered when we see it, don't we? So I'm going to just pull out a few areas that, that might help someone become well-ordered and hope that we can uh, land the plane with what Paul is talking about with finding someone who's respectable. I'm going to propose that there are three areas of a person's life that God will use for his kingdom with greater effect. And neglecting these areas, at least in my Understanding has the observable, repeatable effect of diminishing one's influence for the cause of Christ. If you blow off these areas at a minimum, chances are you're swimming upstream to do things for the Lord. Some areas are going to be practical just from common knowledge and what we would all understand from observing life as the Lord has laid it out for us. And some are going to be clearly required and quantified from Scripture. Obviously, there are more than these three areas, but with the time that we have and just with the focus that we're going to be uh, dealing with this morning, it's not necessary yet to get into those other areas. This is a big setup here. So what I'm also going to probably move into next week is giving you the counter 
to what I'm going to tell you now. So listen to everything I'm going to tell you and go out and say, okay, I'm going to do it. And then next week I'm going to blow up the whole model. And be like, you know that whole week you spent doing this? Don't do that. I say it tongue in cheek, but that's kind of the idea. Remember, a, 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 a godly leader is one that has balance. And there'll always be a counter argument, even coming from the scriptures that you've got to wrestle with and say, Lord, what did you mean? Because I thought you made it clear over here that I'm supposed to do this. But then you just kind of swung the pendulum over here. And now I'm my head is all screwed up because I was thinking I had it right. And then you come and throw this at me. So I'm hoping to show you both sides so that I wouldn't be guilty of just cherry picking verses and say, do this because the Lord says it. Because he also says, do something opposite sometimes. Confused yet? Welcome to my brain this morning. All right. First up, and these are in order of least important in my, you know, humble estimation to most important. I guess I'll start off by just sharing an example. When we moved to the area 10 years ago, we bought a house in Winslow just across the river. And um, we moved from uh, a very um, congested area of Boston. And so the backyard we had in our apartment was about the size of Pastor Bill's conga set over here. And uh, so you could just basically go out with scissors and you'd cut your lawn for the day and you're done. Um, and so when we moved to Winslow, we had a quarter of an acre of land. And when we bought the house, we were like, we got a yard, you know. And now that I've gotten, gotten reaccustomed to Maine life, I'm realizing, you know, the, the quarter of an acre isn't much at all, you know, and that you start thinking, wow, it'd be great to be spread out and away and all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, we uh, had a pretty easy time managing the lawn there for, for a few summers, and it was just uh, with a, a regular push mower, and, and I had a weed whacker eventually do some of the other things and stuff. Not a great landscaper by any stretch, but I just liked driving home and it kind of being ready and looking good and stuff, and so tried to stay on top of it. And then uh, there was some weird season. I forget what was going on, but something really strange was happening in my life. Not only were we having tons of rain, which was making it, you know, grow faster on the on the land, but um, my schedule was not lining up to any of these, like the moments when the sun would come out for a little bit. And so after a couple of weeks, my, my lawn was looking more than it normally does. It wasn't awful, but it was starting to look a little bad, you know. And uh, so it was just a concern for me because I I got that OCD where I like it to look all neat and clean and all that kind of stuff. And so it was just affecting me. And then uh, as I finally got the time to go out there and do it, I go out and open the garage door and I bring the, the lawnmower out and just get it over there. And I go to pull the cord like I always do. And I'm like, there's no handle. Where did this thing go? So I was thinking, well, that's a freaky accident, right? You know, I must have pulled it off without realizing it or something. I don't know how you do that. But I was like, some, my handle's gone. And I looked a little closer at my, my rope, and it looked like it had been cut, you know? So I was like, man, somebody had a great prank. I don't know who, who that was, because um, that's how I respond to adversity all the time. Big smile on my face. Hey, joy of the Lord. And so, um, so I said, well, this is going to be kind of a pathetic uh, fill-in, but um, it's a small enough yard. I could probably go get the weed whacker. It won't be even, but I'll just try to get it down and everything. Yeah. Well, fortunately, your, your, your thoughts of where this could go never happened because when I went to the weed whacker and went, nothing's happening, right? I look and my gas line was cut too on the weed whacker. So I'm like, someone was out to get me. This wasn't just 
oops, I ripped the handle off the thing. But both of the things that I needed at the time I needed them were sabotaged. Well, I don't know if you live my life at all, but it's like if you just go to the hardware store to get the replacement gas tube, you know, it's like they're out. And then you go to another place and they only have different millimeter sizes and all this kind of stuff. And so, and then I know the first thing about putting a handle back on a mower and all that kind of stuff. And so really, just before I realized you could just YouTube everything, I had no idea what I was going to do. And then I had these thoughts about you bring it to the small engine guy and it's going to sit in the back of his lot for three months and then you'll never get your mower back. And I was kind of plagued with all of this. And so my grass just kept doing this and I don't know why I didn't maybe I tried but I didn't think about like hey could I borrow a mower I really need to get on this or something like that well it dawned on me pretty soon thereafter as some of my neighbors would kind of say you having some trouble is there something we can do to help you out that's when it dawned on me that maybe I should be a little bit more concerned about what I can stand and what's kind of weighing in on them right because uh, quite frankly I don't know how many of them knew where I worked or what I did, but, you know, in a small little neighborhood like you've got, the word probably gets around. And um, and then some of my immediate neighbors knew what I did and everything. So I, then it just started dawning on me, like, what are they going to think about, one, you know, my care of my house, uh, two, my care of what I do for work, and, and then are, are they going to start negatively thinking about faith, like they don't even take care of this guy's needs, he can't go get a handle for his mower, you know, all these things. It might sound extreme, but all of these things started just like dawning on me that it wasn't just about whether or not I could just overlook my lawn. Now, all of a sudden, it was starting to impact those around me. It's a little thing, right? It's a tiny little thing. Your grass flops over. Who really cares? But the point I'm making is that somebody thought it was kind of important. You go around neighborhoods, and it's like, you know, this person cut their lawn today, and so the next guy jumps out and says, well, I guess I should do it because I don't want it to look different. From It matters to people, and it was starting to look like it didn't matter to me. And so when I think of a respectable person, I typically have this image of a well-dressed gentleman, maybe somebody from a, a black-and-white TV show or a movie. You know, they've got the right hat, they've got the right suit, they've got all of those things. I think of iron shirts and polished shoes. I think of nicely combed and parted hair, a clean-shaved face, and a pleasant aftershave smell. And I think of that. When I think of somebody who's respectable, my mind goes back several decades of who I've seen in TVs and movies. Not because I don't see them today, but it's just my image of who that person is. So obviously, if I'm going to say to you that one of the aspects that we need to address in our life, if we are going to be respectable, uh, one of the things that we could apply loosely, least important on the list, is outward appearance. Now, I know it's going to sound like heresy if you cut me off right now, because you're going to think, what is he saying? We've got to be ready to walk the runway and strut our stuff and go into debt and buy all our new clothes and all that sort of stuff. All I'm talking about is a mindset that starts getting beyond what affects me, and start to think about how other people perceive what's going on in my life. Styles are too subjective. Fashion icons don't determine what's, what is appropriate for God's children to be wearing. Automobile makers don't uh, determine what's appropriate for us to be driving. Uh, neighbors don't determine for us when it's appropriate to cut our grass. So please don't misunderstand the point here, but there is something that has to register with the average believer that says, I am not just an island unto myself. I am not just seen by the person looking in the mirror. That others see my actions 
as well. They see my, 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 the, my mannerisms or the way I carry myself or the way I, I talk or, or the speech that I share and all those kinds of things. So I think what's important is, is it's important enough to at least make the list is that uh, if we start thinking more about enhancing the gospel with either our image or our actions, we can start thinking about the fact that perhaps too cool distracts from the gospel because you're trying too hard. But so does the opposite. Avoiding what's going on in the culture around you and acting like, ah, it has no no meaning to me and I shouldn't even uh, try to evaluate what's going on or something because I'm not of this world. I'm, I'm really of a, of a far green country and I don't need to think about these things. That also starts to have a detracting uh, impact on your opportunities to be faithful and boastful even about who God is. I need you to uh, listen this morning less cynically than perhaps Maybe you're tempted to right now because this is certainly not going in a direction that would be on a great uh, big TV show for a, uh, a mega church or something like that. This isn't going in that direction. I remember when I was growing up in church, uh, there was so much emphasis, if we can just pick on appearance or fashion or clothing or something like that. I just remember um, there was so much uh, attention given to the fact that when you come out to church on Sunday morning, these are the phrases I heard all the time. You need, to, you need to prepare to wear your best because of who you're going to do business with. If you were invited as an audience of the president, how would you dress? So why would you come and sit before the king of kings without your very best on? And so those general principles, which I do not think are bad principles, uh, would be thrown out there. But it was the application of those principles that got all weird. Because sometimes people would say, well, then I should be wearing a suit. Because if I was going to be in the presence of the president, I'd probably need a suit and everything. And so um, I would see guys showing up to church who, um, you know, their normal attire throughout the week would be Carhartts and T-shirts and stuff like that. They're not suit guys. So what are they tempted to do? Well, I knew I have one somewhere back in this closet somewhere, right? And so these guys would come in and wear the suits that you're kind of doing this to, right, to try to get your button across. And the styles were like a couple decades old and stuff. Why? It, they, they needed to have it explained to them, probably through better shepherding, that what, what you are presenting as God's best is what comes from your heart, not what you think some preacher is saying or fashion icon or something like that. So if you're having to do this because you think this is your best that you can do for the Lord, and other people are going, that suit's just not working, dude. You know? You know, but then he gets his nicest car hearts out and he gets his nicest shirt and all that sort of stuff. And you're just like, well, hey, that works. You know, so that's why you won't walk into faith and see a big deal being made about whether or not we're wearing ties and suits and everything like that. Nothing wrong with the churches that want to do that. But we have to present this in a way that says, look, we do care about how people receive us as an outward appearance. But it isn't all about keeping up appearances and having a phony core. So appearances matter. But they aren't the be-all, end-all. I hope you understand where I'm coming from with this. I'm going to move on quickly because it's the least important we'll spend the least amount of time on. Also, um, I, I believe another area where the Lord would challenge us through his word, if we are to be respect, respectable people, is in how we discipline our lives, both physically and mentally. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who lives in you and was given to you by God? 
You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, we typically use this verse when we're talking about uh, what we put into our bodies, what we eat or what we drink or what we smoke or whether or not we work out. And we do those kinds of things. And that verse is usually dragged out for that kind of application because it is uh, how we take care of the body that God has given us, which is proven by Scripture to be the temple of the Holy Spirit that resides within us. Now, that's a true application if you look at the principle of it, but in the more direct context that Paul is sharing this verse, he even goes further and says there are some sins that are done outside the body. You know, if I tick you off or I offend you or something like that, there are some sins that I cause for the world around me and I might have to go clean up. But there are also some sins that I do within the body that not just have an effect on those outside, but I start paying the punishment and the consequence inside. And if you want to think about how freaky it is that Paul had this application, he was putting it in the terms of sexual immorality. So when you think about when I say freaky, it's like how how, uh, premonition he must have been knowing that all the things that we deal with as a culture and society now because of sexual immorality that happens to our bodies, you wonder what was going on in Paul's day and his era. Because he says, it's not just enough to worry about the things that you eat. It's not just enough to worry about whether or not you're on the treadmill, but you also have to guard your uh, your sexual practice and guard against immorality. Why? Because it affects the body that God has given you as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if we're boiling this down to what is at the principal level of all this, not just in the prescription on top, we would have to conclude that God cares about what you and I do with our flesh and bones. And he cares about what we do in all aspects. Now, remember, we're talking about somebody who is respectable, right? So I'm trying to be perhaps a little man-to-man, man-to-woman with you about we kind of know who we respect and who we don't in life. And God's saying it's not wrong for us to look to those certain people and say, well, they must be doing something right, the disciplines that they're carrying out. And the way that they're taking care of things, not because they're trying to be showy, not because they're trying to uh, win the, um, the, the curling, uh, you know, a championship of the world and trying to get the biggest guns on their, on their arms or anything like that, but simply because they have a humility that says, this thing right here doesn't belong to me. I'm trying not to mess it up on purpose. So there's a physical component to our disciplines that enhances somebody's ability to be respectable. Also, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as what? A workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. He continues in the next chapter, he says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Don't you find that you're able to follow somebody easier? Don't you find that you're able to trust somebody more when they seem to know a little bit more than you? I have a couple people in my life that are, most people in my life are smarter than me, but I have a couple people in my life that are like off the chart smarter than me. And I, I see how I become around them. I stop thinking for myself because they can figure it out like that. And I just kind of wait for them to come to the answer. I'm like, sure, we can do that. 
And uh, so when I'm around people that I know are just much smarter than me and can get from, to the conclusion much quicker than I can, I have a tendency to just act in trust around them. When you and I go through the discipline of sharpening ourselves in what we know about who the Lord is and we delve into the scriptures to know more about his goodness and about his plan for this, for this life and for the people around us and we, we have a confidence in knowing the answer, people will warm up. People will say, I can trust the direction that person's going. And so I think that's the emphasis that Paul is trying to make here when he's encouraging Timothy. He says, you know how to do this, Timothy. Don't let, he says in another passage, don't let people look down on your youth. You know enough of how to do this. You have the right compassion to get it done. So don't let them pick on you, Timothy. You'll be able to pull this off. And I need you to go and find other people who will do likewise. And so he's telling Timothy, discipline yourself. Stay sharp in what you know. Don't forget in all that you've learned since you were young. So I think there's an amount of outward perception or appearance that we have to keep an eye on. I think there's an amount of discipline, both physically and mentally, that, that God's people should be about in order to be, have greater effect with those around us. And, and on the most important, uh, important part of the scale of our list for this morning, I'd say that also God cares about how we relate to one another. And I believe that the effect on how you and I have friendships and relationships directly impacts the strength of our message as we're trying to promote God's kingdom to those around you. Paul also says in Romans 12, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, if it's at all possible, as much as you can do from your perspective, be at peace with all men. Have you ever seen, um, I, I know I have, have you ever seen ministers of the gospel that were just cantankerous and it's like if you saw them in the grocery line or you saw them at a stoplight, they'd be the first ones to like yell, get out of my way or, you know, leave me alone or something like that. There's an edge about them. And there's something that's off-putting to us about that. Say, you're supposed to be a minister of grace and you just seem all cranked up all the time. Well, in a different level, we should see ourselves that way as well and say, well, Lord, if I'm also your ambassador, if I also represent your kingdom, how am I being perceived in, in how I'm treating those around me? And Paul says, if you have any control over the situation at all, be at peace with all men. He also says in Philippians 2, 3, he says, with humility of, rem of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So show everyone around you that their needs are more important than yours. What we start to do is we start to present a gospel that is wrapped in, the, in a, in a life-changing ability rather than just a bunch of platitudes. Well, God's really good and he could do all this. When it starts to hit home for us and we start to conduct ourselves differently, when we start, start to strive saying, well, it's not wrong for me. Remember what, what Paul said at the beginning of this list, that if you are striving for the office of an overseer, it's a good thing. So it's not wrong for me to want to develop the qualities of this list. And let's, let's be thankful for the fact that this list is not something we're born with. This is not just for the few talented. Those that were just, well, this guy's just naturally good at staying faithful to his wife. <laughs> He's got, you know, it's like not even a temptation for him. Or this guy's, this guy's really good with living peaceably with all these people because he's got that nice calm demeanor. He's just kind of cool and even about all that. All the things on this list are things that you and I can develop by the grace of God. And where we part ways with the, 
with the name it and claim it uh, atmosphere or the people that are saying, just go out and get the better car because God will show the people around you that he can take care of his people better if you have a nicer car. Or the teenage girl who goes, I think God wants me to have that dress because it will help me reach more in the kingdom. And, you know, it's not about you and I getting ahead of ourselves and saying, well, I've got to present something that isn't true about me. I've got to go out and show some image so that God is made uh, more famous or more holy. Really what we're talking about is, Lord, have I been uh, bl- uh, blind to the spots in my life that you're calling me to examine to a greater detail? Are there things about me in personality and in conduct that are keeping a barrier between those that I'm trying to share your love with because there's just something I'm blind to? Reveal it to me, Lord. I do care about how I'm received. Why? Because I don't want it to make your name uh, uh, take, take a hit from my conduct. I do care about how, how sharp I am when it comes to learning more about your word. I, I do care about trying to take care of what you've given me as the temple of the Holy Spirit more. Why? Well, because I, I just want to make sure that somebody doesn't look at me and say, well, really, that's a Christian? Now, please don't go to our diet culture and say that there's some kind of magic weight limit or about amount that you have to be able to bench press in order for you to, to feel like you're the respectable person. None of those things are spelled out for us in Scripture. All that's spelled out for us in Scripture is that we try to live this life of balance. We say, Lord, what's next for me? What's the area of my life that you would open up to an even greater extent that I'd be able to see where am I getting in your way? And most importantly in all this is, Lord, how am I living with those around me? If I go out and tell the world that Jesus loves them and I go home and kick the dog, poke my wife in the eyeball, am am I really sending a true message? Am I really out there promoting something that, that I can sell with conviction, if you can pardon that phrase? No, not really. People see through it left and right. Well, that's all the time that we're going to have on this this morning. And so next week, we're going to blow this whole thing up and talk about how it doesn't matter what you do with your body and it doesn't matter what you do with your mind and who cares how you treat other people around you. That's the cliffhanger because you've got to come back and see that train wreck, right? In all seriousness, let's just thank the Lord for his goodness and for his faithfulness because uh, these are hard, hard things to live by. And culture is in our ear trying to define these things for us all the time. You need to look like this. You need to dress like this. You need to drive that. You need to cut your grass on Thursday because your neighbor did. Blah, 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 blah. The Lord just wants us to lay it down before him and say, Lord, whatever you reveal to me that I can do one step more for you, I want to do that. And in doing so, that's the person that others follow. That's the person that others come in closer closer relationship with the Lord because of what they see going on in your life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your, your amazing grace that covers all of our cracks, all of our flaws, all of our breaks. And Lord, I just feel like um, somebody living under that grace in such immense measure this morning for so many reasons. And so I thank you, Lord. That not only is this a message that has come uh, off these pages, but Lord, has just rested in my heart as well. And so I thank you for your faithfulness there. I thank you for each and every one of these people. I pray, Lord, they have heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in the way they needed to today. 
Help them, Lord, to dwell only on the things that you would call them to next and not the other things that were distracting or hindering hearing your voice. Thank you for your greatness to us in Jesus' name. Amen.